0: Welcome to The Velocity Factor, a podcast about leadership, change, and growth. I'm Ben Strout, President and Chief Growth Architect at Velocity Strategy Solutions, an on-demand, next-generation management consulting firm dedicated to helping leaders and organizations design, develop, and deploy smarter growth strategies. Each week, my co-host and I explore the questions, challenges, and obstacles every leader faces when you push beyond business as usual and reach for breakthrough results. It's raw, unfiltered, and exactly what you need to find the confidence, clarity, and conviction to step into your preferred future. Subscribe to email updates at TheVelocityFactor.com. Now let's do this together. All right, welcome back. This week, we actually want to dig into a topic that I think is going to have definitely some prickly parts, and it's definitely going to uh, create a little controversy. And that's exactly where I like to live. So I'm just going to say it, Daniel, because somebody's got to say it. HR isn't really about humans, and people aren't resources. Uh, you know, I think our first interaction as new employees is always, almost always, with with HR, and as new managers. Uh, you get a lot of face time with HR. And then as you move up in the organization, you get a lot of face time uh, with HR and the leadership there and human resources. And first, I just want to give a big, huge disclaimer. I love all of my friends in HR. Uh, You guys are in an unbelievably complex role. Uh, You are at one time an advocate for each employee and also, uh, let's call it the executioner for the desires of uh, executives and very often, what my friends in HR tell me is that they feel very uh, stuck in the middle. Uh, they are the most likely to really improve things of like, around culture and people and teams and all of that, but they are the least, um, if not just equipped, but empowered, part of the organization yeah, uh, exactly. to do that. So. So I you know, I really wanna I really want to put a big disclaimer that while while I definitely have mixed feelings about HR as a whole, I don't think it has to do with the people. I think it just has to do with how it's set up. and you know, when I've looked back historically at HR, HR was really created, that function was to protect the company from the employees mm-hmm. uh, and you go back to early industrial. Uh, and you know, industrial movement and management and all of that theory, and so that's really the heartbeat. That at the end of the day, while HR should be about people development and people operations, and we're starting to see some of that language uh, I- intersect there. You know, it really is about making sure that um, you know that that the executives aren't liable, and that if there is an employee issue, that it's handled uh, in coordination with whatever laws. Uh, and and compliance and risk management as possible to to minimize the liability of the organization. Is that just like a completely cynical and skeptical take on HR?
1: No, I, I I'm I'm skeptical of every business function. Whether I mean in our conversation, sales and marketing, operations, finance, and HR, um, and everyone's undergoing a disruption. And that word's thrown around a lot, but there's a massive shift in this past year. Uh, is a, is a shift that has, the shift has been accelerated. And so um, to keep up, you know, in a knowledge economy, uh, functions, positions, you know, are dated within 18 months. And we're seeing that a lot in HR. Um, And so there's, there's increasing information, there's increasing complexity, there's increasing anxiety, that all falls on HR, there's uh, decreasing mental health, there's decreasing engagement. And there's decreasing commitment. And really the, the tip of the spear for addressing that is HR. And that's why some of the best companies uh, lead out of media and HR because it's a attention battle and a people war. And the best companies are going to enter into that struggle and that shift. That's so
0: good. Absolutely. Well, what you know, one of the areas where I think – uh, H.R.'s in, in really uh, a tough spot. Is is how how do we in fact address this whole issue of injecting the humanity back into business and operations? Uh, you know, I think gosh, it was uh, early two thousands. You know, post nine eleven, you had Sarbanes Oxley, and you had I think the what I'll call it the invasion of lawyers and accountants into the C-suite.
1: And everything
0: became about ones and zeros, and I have lots of friends that are lawyers and accountants, so they they know i I pick on them all the time the The, the challenge that I have with that is that is that lawyers and accountants love predictability and patterns mm-hmm. uh, they love to minimize risk in that, and so Hr then becomes a buffer zone to that so When we get to a period like COVID and it's injecting so much uncertainty into the system and there's zero constants at all anywhere, uh, it really stresses out those type of compliance officers and risk managers um, that tend to be at the helm of leadership. And I think it's it's really presenting uh, an interesting challenge when in the midst of that uncertainty, what's really being called out is, is what, I, what I think is a, a called an age of empathy, for lack of a better phrase. And how can we as organizations and leaders live into that and recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing our competitor doesn't have is our team, is mm-hmm. our people. Yeah. So if we really believe that, we've set up organizations all wrong because in industrial management, it's all about division of labor, minimizing risk, Spreading the cost across as many variables uh, and units as possible to lower that, and in the process of it, somewhere along the way, people became a slot on a spreadsheet uh, or a uh, a placeholder on an organizational chart. And I think you know when if we're really if we really believe that this is the age of empathy, and we're injecting the genius of humanity back into our businesses, and that is our competitive advantage. You know, small, interdependent, interdisciplinary teams that are structured differently, uh, but really depending on on that that creativity to run with it. I think we've got a real problem because, it, you know, human resources is supposed to be about human and about and about humans and about developing them so that they truly are resources for the company. But the way we're doing it now just isn't working. And I tell you where who's feeling it. So where HR is the most likely to understand it and the least empowered to do it, the hiring manager or the team leader is the most likely and empowered to benefit from it, but the least aware of what the real benefit is. Uh, I, you know, I work with a lot of uh, sales managers and people responsible for revenue, and and those folks do what they've always seen, right? Which is push, 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 and then when a few people drop off, you just go find some other people. Um, and, uh, and put them in and you kind of perpetuate this idea that people are expendable. Well, if, if we're in an age of empathy and, uh, the currency of business is trust, uh, you can't just run through people like, uh, like water. And I think that's a real, a real challenge. You know, Daniel, in, in your work, you spent a lot of time with leaders around this area, And, and my goodness, boy, did I make every mistake in the book when I went from a star individual (laughs) contributor to a, uh, you know, to a leader of people and that transition, nobody pulled me aside and said, Hey, you know what? It's not about what you can do anymore. It's about how you can create environments for other people to be successful. So what, what are those challenges that you see? And, and what advice do you have for leaders who are looking at HR and HR is kind of looking back and you kind of have this moment of, I don't know. What, what advice do you have for them?
1: Well, you, you bring up some good words uh, that I think are important to define. You know, uh, one of them would be uh, human. You know, people mean, what do you mean human? We're humans. Uh, and, you know, assumed humanity is never going to be uh, transformational humanity. And so I think it's important to drill down and go, well, what does it mean to be human? And what is human versus non-human work? And to drill down more what are practices that dehumanize ourselves and others that create as you just said distrust and what are practices that humanize now we all get it when someone is seeking to use us or exploit us i mean you can pick it up i mean if you have any bit of emotional or social intelligence you can see when someone's just you're a cog in their machine uh, oftentimes i have to tell men and women I'm coaching, like, hey, if you just want that transactional thing, uh, this ain't going to last very long. Because you can just pick it up. Like, I'm paying you for services. I pay you this. You do that. Transformational leadership recognizes there's more at play. And what does it mean for us to truly be present to ourselves and present to our internal and external customer, i.e. what you just addressed as empathy, seeing the other. And in a Empathy economy, attention economy. In our world, uh, attention, there is a deficit of attention. There is a deficit of empathy. And so a great differentiator for businesses will be business who's and business leaders who legitimately see the other and care for the other. And people can see through the the game. Uh, People are much wiser than we give them credit for. And so the companies that I think will accelerate the most are those that celebrate humanity and can recognize the brutality of the business world. You know, this this isn't an easy game. It's a war, um, but can enter into that brutality without sacrificing what it means to be human. That's so good. You know, one of the books that really challenged me to think
0: differently uh, about this was a, a book I read several years ago called How Google Works. Yeah. And they actually talk about their ideal employee. Now, mind you, this is this is Google, right? This is the, the cream of the crop work at Google. Uh, they're they're searching for, you know, the Ivy League, computer science, mathematicians, statisticians, uh, just absolutely outstanding engineers. And in the book, they actually say what we look for are people that we call the smart creative. And, of course, that's a, a made-up word. That's a made-up Google term. And if you're Google, you can make up your own words. Uh, but, but in this, uh, you know, this concept was that we don't want somebody who's a specialist. We actually want a generalist who brings a great degree of skill to the table but also curiosity. And I thought that was really interesting because they, they're very interested in, in having somebody who's highly skilled but unbelievably curious because Google's always trying to answer the next question. Uh, so when, when, we, when we look for, for specialists, specialists bring with them all kinds of blinders. The second big thing that I pulled away from that book, which I think is, is just really uh, remarkable and definitely ahead of its time, Is the idea that every team, every team that they put together within Google is disbanded after a period of time? I think, if I remember right, don't quote me on this, uh, somewhere around three years.
1: Yeah, three years.
0: Success or failure. uh, You know, the the team is formed and then the team, you know, is is completely deconstructed and reformed, and uh, and I I think I, I thought that was interesting too because what it really did. They talked about the advantage of cross pollinating failure and success across the organization. And so I'm thinking about this, you know, in this highly technical engineering, computer science environment. I mean, it doesn't get much more technical than uh, than how Google operates yeah. in that. And their look, they believe their genius is not in the technical acumen. Their genius is in their people to be able to collaborate together to solve a problem for which we may not even have words yet, and for which we may not even have a solution that's available on the market. You know, most of us are never in that type of situation. We're trying to incrementally improve on what is, maybe introduce something new, but not like, you know, set something completely on its ear or bring something to market that nobody's ever even thought about before. And so it strikes me, it strikes me, Daniel, that that in a time of massive uncertainty, uh, that the saving grace of every company is the curiosity and the collaboration of their people. Yeah. But it also strikes me how the way that we formed it, right? So, so think about where we are in this pressure cooker is that not only is that a reality, but here's the other practical reality of this. You know, both are seeing the, the negative ramifications of this. You have individuals working in remote environments for the first time ever. Now, you and I have been working remote a long time, but this is the first time ever they've, they've worked remote. They're working with people they may never have met before around projects that they might have inherited from other people and for managers for whom they may not even have had a conversation yet. So if we need the curiosity and the collaboration and the creativity of our people, and yet the way that we have operating and still trying to manage people is coming out of that industrial revolution, to me... You have two ships passing in the night, and it feels completely hopeless. So yeah. if our saving grace is our people, but our structures keep us from elevating and amplifying the genius of our people, we have a real problem. And I don't think it's HR's responsibility to solve it. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think?
1: No, I'm, I, I think I think there's a number of themes you brought up, but the, the specialist theme is is something that I think a lot of people debate. And so they will say, you know, it's no longer the age of SMEs, subject matter experts, and we just need to move to generalists. And it's like, it's a both hand. And I, and I hear you saying that it's a both hand, we need subject matter experts. But this is the age of the generalist. And unfortunately, so much of uh, business strategy, business management is plagued by reductionism, you know, reducing the business to numbers or a function of the business. And the ability to scale up cross-functional discipline. I mean, think about it. Think of uh, one of the classic divisions between uh, we've got marketing over here and sales over here, and we're frustrated because they're silos, and then there's another silo with operations. And the smart creative, at its core, someone who's a smart creative is able to make the connections, the connections between what we're marketing, what we're selling, w- what we're fulfilling, uh, the numbers, and is able to see the whole and address the parts and those that are able to make the connections um, between what who we are and what we're doing and the jobs we're, problems we're solving. That's another great differentiator. And, you know, this is this is the, uh, the problem with so many MBA programs. Uh, they, they focus on specialization. This is the problem with <laughs> so much consulting and coaching uh, is that it's very reductionistic. Uh, it's about leadership. No, it's about performance management. No, it's about learning. No, it's about listening. And it's like, the answer is yes, it's about all those things. And how do we hold all those things to bring before the one thing that's before us? That's
0: it. Right, you, you, you said it. You said it. And I, I, let me say it another way, just to, just to get real gritty and practical there. If you're trying to solve a revenue problem and a strategy problem, before you solve your people problem, yeah, you're wasting your time. Yeah, uh, you really are because you you know. But but I get this all the time, right? We're in we're in Q four. I mean, it is just everyone's pressing it to the to the max, right? The we're trying to press press the pedal all the way through the floorboard and uh, and go as fast as we can to make up as much lost ground as possible, uh, coming out of 2020 and set up you know as best as we can for a great Q one of 2021. And so when I talk to leaders about this, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I know we've got to do it. I know we've got to do it. <laughs> man, but I just don't have time to do it." And it is—it's it's classic, right? Yeah. I mean, this—this this is the guy who's 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 smoking while he's talking to the doctor,
1: um, and the
0: doctor's like, "If you keep smoking, you're going to die." And he's like, "You know what, Doc? I think you're right. Um, yeah, let man, I'm I'm almost there. Like, I'm I'm almost there." It's like, "Well, you're almost there is going to kill you, literally." And, I, you know, it's just I, I think at the end of the day, we, we got to solve it. So if, if a leader comes to you, Daniel, and says, all right, I'm not getting the results that I want. Uh, if I keep pressing, my best people are going to leave, which is the real risk here. Right. I mean, it's never the people you want to leave that leave. It's always the people you don't want to leave who leave. Yeah. But, but, you know, as the pressure gets put down on on individuals, uh, the high performers are looking. Uh, and they're looking for a place because they're, they're feeling unsettled, too. And if you don't have the right people in the right roles, working on the right things, and you don't have a manager that you feel like is, is rooting for you, what, what's some practical advice to kind of get started at, at, at attacking this issue that you would give a leader?
1: Yeah, I mean, people really need to own the problem. Um, and people recognize that there's challenges with their technology, processes, revenue. But, you know, technology needs people. Processes need people. Revenue needs people, and you got to make time. I mean, one of the fundamentals of humanity is to be human is to be in time and in a place and in an environment. And so practically, I we challenge leaders to audit their time. How much time are they putting into design and strategy? How much time are they putting into uh, tactical decision-making? How much time are they putting into doing their work? And 80% of our work, at least 80%, is just doing. It's just the grind. But leaders are uh, given time to work on their work. And just a simple audit, I mean, we challenge people to take 10% of their time. You know, that's four to six hours a week to work on their work. That That is to work on their trust building, to work on their innovation, to take time to back up and have those crucial conversations they need to have that they can't afford not to have. And so when we, when we step in there with uh, – executives and leaders and managers, we just make time. I mean, in in many regards, we're making time for them to do the work they can't afford not to do. We're taking time to facilitate dangerous and difficult conversations regarding technology and processes and revenue, but people are at the heart of those conversations, people having real conversations, saying what needs to be said, and eating that elephant one bite at a time. And so things like building trust, things like clarifying our plan and planning process, things like having those difficult conversations, things like holding one another accountable to our plan and to our vision. Um, that's, That's the part of the mission and the corporation that is so often pushed to the side. But leaders can't afford to push that to the side.
0: I absolutely love that. Uh, One of the things that that I do at the beginning of of almost all of my strategy engagements is build consensus around the leadership table. And man, that is that that is like herding cats. Uh, I mean, it it is almost impossible to get everybody to agree and use the same language uh, (laughs) around what the
1: problem is. I like I I like to call it I like to call it herding tigers. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay there you go there you go i, I like that too uh but it's, it's just it's just nearly impossible to get to get everybody to agree because they bring their their bias of past success i mean you know they mm-hmm. and for so long we championed you know the uh the jack welch ge model which just you know beat the crap out of your people and then those who can't those who can survive will and those who can't won't and and that that just that's just not going to fly in the uh age of empathy so uh, you know I think the idea of owning it is is a really, really important one. I, I think for me, the other part of it is and I'm such a such a data person in this is that if you're trying to do something you've never done before, you've got to inject new information into the system and And the fact of the matter is is that the ability to capture people data, work style preferences, um you know uh, understanding you know people's tendencies and nature, um, understanding people's uh, own, you know, the way that they interpret the world and the way that they hear you is so, so important. You know, Daniel, I I lived nearly 40 years until I realized that not everybody wanted to communicate in the same way that I communicated, that not everybody wanted (laughs) to do the same things I wanted to do, that not everybody was interested in the same things that I was interested in. I just blindly thought that if it was interesting to me, it was interesting to everybody else. And so sometimes, you know, I felt like Tom Hanks and, you know, League of Their Own, you know, there's no crying in baseball. So, you know, when I'd say something and it really upset somebody, it's like, what? what is the problem here? And mm-hmm. it was just completely tone deaf to the fact that not everybody was like me. And uh, and that is just, you know, it's certainly something I've, I've learned from and, and grown from. But there's so much people data available. You, you know, you have some great tools that you use as part of that. Uh, you know, I, I do uh, as as well. But man, if you're not taking advantage of that and you're flying blind, or you think a few books and seminars and some online YouTube videos are going to suddenly make it worthwhile for you, uh, then you know that's a real sign of a leader who needs to to be reset on on what their what their real purpose and their goal is. You know, I used to think that all that stuff was was a waste of time. You know, we just got to hit the revenue, we just got to hit the revenue. And here's here's what I learned I, out of all of the pain uh, that I caused myself and others in that process is that you can move any team to a revenue result once, but if you want to really change an organization, you got to change the people, and you got to reach the hearts of the people, and uh, and so I think you do that by injecting new data because new data forces you. To reconcile what you perceive to be true with what is actually true. And when you encounter new information, it either challenges or validates what you believe to be real. What's been your experience with that?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really drawn to the reality in this season. I mean, one of the things I love about COVID is COVID has heightened the reality that business is a complex enterprise. And, you know, so often people have simple solutions um, and there, there are simple problems and, you know, that have simple solutions. And then there's complicated problems that require sensing and analyzing and responding. But complex challenges require, require us to um, step into unknown unknowns, not known unknowns would be complicated. And probe and sense and respond and create environments and experiments that allow patterns to emerge. And the truth is that's the majority of business. And it's definitely business that wants to be um, innovative and be a part of the change and be early adopters and are aware that someone's eating your lunch somewhere. But I, we come back to that term of just curiosity, being curious and recognizing we don't see the whole um, Something we share internally and externally is the darkness principle. We're all in darkness. We only see a part. And mm. recognizing that and recognizing our bias, our just human bias is to think we see the whole. And the higher you go up in leadership and the more success you have, it comes with success. With success comes the belief that you see the whole. And the challenge is we're all in darkness. We're darkness. We're in darkness in our marriage, we're in darkness in our parenting, and we're in darkness in our business. Uh, Being in darkness just means we're limited and we don't see the whole. And this is where collaboration is so vital. Uh, You know,
0: that that what you just said there is is so true. Uh, What puts people in senior leadership positions is also the very thing that could really hold them back. You know, I call it the bias of past success. I love the idea of darkness. But, you know, you do tend, you, you really do get a lot of confidence in your decision-making from your past experiences Mm -hmm. and particularly your past successes. But right now, nothing is business as usual, nothing. And so you lose a tremendous amount of credibility with your team if you just say, do this because that's what worked for me. I mean, chief revenue officers, chief sales officers are classic for saying this. Well, back in my day, I just did more cold calling. And I'm not saying that they're that that that's not part of it, but I mean the reality is, if you have not been in the field for 20 years, it's a good chance that your <laughs> vision of what cold calling is isn't the same thing that exists today, and that people are interacting with it differently. And it doesn't make you bad; it just means that it's it's not completely informed uh, by what's uh, you know what what's happening. And I, I think you know one of the one of the things that I try to do with leaders. Uh, particularly those that are are on on the leading revenue teams is, is get in the field with them, you know, and, uh, and, and, and eliminate that, identify the friction and eliminate it. And, and when you, when you listen in on sales calls and, and you go with them or you sit in on, Zoom meetings, you start to realize that things are quite different than what you anticipated. And the, your team might not be using the words that make sense to you. But once you see it all, it brings new information. That new information really empowers you to do something different. So, so we got to own it. We got to get new information. But I also think we got to change the measure of success. Uh, you know, and, and what I mean by that is that we have forever in the industrial management complex Defined everything by activity, right? Activity. And that's wrong. We have to actually shift. Well, I shouldn't say wrong because that's moral indicator. It's ineffective. What what really has to happen is, uh, you know, we have to shift from activity-based measures to outcomes-based measures. So we have to be able to identify, uh, you know, in, in this, what is the outcome that we want And how is that team jointly responsible for that outcome? I would venture to say that most boards, investors, uh, CEOs are less concerned how you get there. They're more concerned that you get there. And so our activity-based measures really give us a false sense of security because we believe that if we just do these things, then this will happen. And it, it doesn't mean that disciplined execution isn't part of it, but I think a higher level thinking, particularly when we're navigating through uncertainty, is that our outcomes have to be aligned with the needs, challenges, obstacles, and opportunities perceived by the person that we're trying to reach, help, sell, whatever. And and particularly for for our teams. And so when we change our measures, it's it's remarkable when we change what we measure, we can change behavior. And and I think that's the part that really has to be revisited. But man, you want to talk about really seeing the underbelly of who moved my cheese? Start changing <laughs> how people are are measured and their scorecard. You know, is another way to say it. You shift the scorecard, and you're gonna not only you're gonna see massive action, you're gonna see a massive reaction. I mean, am I right here?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, this is you know metrics and measures is uh, you know companies rise and fall, and so often. Uh, the the measures of the company are really meaningless and not understood. And when we coach and come alongside companies, it's like, okay, what are, what are the key measures tied to your needs, challenges, and core objectives? And are they meaningful? Are they understood? And just building understanding and meaningful measures that every department, every function, every position has key measures, um, but they're understood and people can really rally around, uh, a scoreboard. One of the things that the research has shown is leaders love, uh, or people love leaders that are moving fast. And so one of the things we encourage leaders is yes, you can accelerate. And this is these are legacy traits. People love leaders that are going fast. People love leaders that are encouraging and recognize humanity. And that's a hard. Uh, those are two hard competencies to hold together. You know, go fast, but don't go over people. But the third one is a clear scoreboard. People love it when they know where they stand. And when you don't know where you stand in a meeting or an organization, it, it increases anxiety. But when you know where you stand and you know what are the measures, what's the scoreboard, um, and there's there's a balance to that scorecard It includes qualitative as well as quantitative measures that are connected to people and performance, um, those are the winning companies.
0: I absolutely love that. So let me see if I can bring it home here in, in this is that if you have a revenue problem, a data problem, a strategy problem, an operations problem, a finance problem, guess what? You have first a people problem. Yes. Solve that and the other things you will have massively new, uh, ab- an abundance of capacity to solve those those other problems. And and don't look to HR to have the magic wand to solve this. They will be your partners and support you in the process, but they are not the ones that are responsible for developing people, you as a leader are. And so you have to own it, you have to inject new data into the system, you have to adjust the measures so that you get the, to get the outcome, that you reach the outcomes that you want and align the activity that you do daily around those outcomes. And, you, and, and, and then if you will do that, if you will do that, I promise you that you will recognize that the persistent challenges that you're dealing with today are completely solvable. And they're solvable in this age of empathy because you are recentering and refocusing your efforts around the most valuable commodity that you have, the most valuable asset, I should say, that you have as a, you know, as a leader. And that's your people. So don't miss that in this. Anything else you want to say or add to that, Daniel, before we close out?
1: No, I I just uh, I I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite books. I mean, definitely I'm with you on Google um, and their I think it's five year research program, Aristotle Project. Um, We can put a a link to that. Um, How Google works. Um, Work Rules by Laszlo Bock. Uh, insights Mm. from inside Google that will transform how you live and lead is another really helpful work to, to help people navigate and negotiate this, uh, people challenge. But one of my favorite books is the technology fallacy, how people are the real key to digital transformation. And so if you're not necessarily picking up what we're throwing down, uh, I want to encourage you to stay curious and inform your conscience regarding the importance of people, um, Because it is a a moral issue in the sense that uh, when we're talking people, we're talking complexity and we're talking morality. When we're talking about bringing human to work, we're talking about just good work, doing good work and good business.
0: Excellent. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Velocity Factor podcast. When you achieve speed and direction in your leadership and organization, Velocity will carry you farther than you ever imagined and faster than you ever thought possible. Now that strategy delivered at the speed of change. Be sure to subscribe to email updates at thevelocityfactor.com.